Welcome to the Working on Wellbeing podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Cunningham, and I'm passionate about the science behind how we can all work on our wellbeing. That's how I came to lead the World Wellbeing Movement, a nonprofit social impact organization housed within the University of Oxford's Wellbeing Research Centre. In short, Our mission is to improve the quality of life for people across the world by connecting leading well-being experts with those people who can have the biggest impact, so with business leaders and policymakers. And through my work, I get to meet the most incredible people. That's why we've created this podcast, so that you can be a fly on the wall and listen in to my conversations with the world's leading well-being experts. In today's episode, we'll get to the bottom of what well-being really is, and we'll discuss how to create a world where well-being is at the heart of everything we do. I'm delighted to be joined today by Karen Guggenheim and Professor Jan Emanuel Deneve, or Jan as he's known, I believe only your mother calls you Jan Emanuel. Um, Only when she's angry at me, so please just Jan will do. (laughs) I'll try not to get angry at you today, so. Um, Karen is an international advocate for the happiness movement, and she is founder and CEO of Wohasu, producer of the World Happiness Summit. And Jan is a professor of behavioral science and economics at the University of Oxford, which is where the World Wellbeing Movement is based. And Jan happens to be a co-founder of the World Wellbeing Movement, as well as a co-editor of the World Happiness Report, which I think sounds like a really cool job, actually. But a lot of hard work nonetheless, though. Hard work nonetheless. <laughs> so I look, I cannot think of two more perfect guests for episode one of the Working on Wellbeing podcast. And I'd love to start by just getting to know you both a bit more. I'd love to hear how both of you kind of got involved in the well-being industry. I, I might start maybe with yourself, Jan. Was there maybe a certain moment in time or a, a kind of motivating reason that you started working on well-being? The moment, there was an aha moment. I was doing my PhD at the London School of Economics. This is now about 12 years ago. And I was working on a big data set. And I was doing something completely different. It was sort of uh, political behaviors, median voter theorem, stuff that we do not wish to talk about on this podcast. But in that data set, there was an item, which was um, a question, the response to a question on zero to 10, how satisfied are you with your life these days? And just at that moment, I realized, wait a second, that is the ultimate question you can possibly ask of people. How do they feel about life from their perspective, from their experience? And ever and I immediately dug up that question, started looking whether it was correlating with other things in the data set. And from that came my first paper. And I've not looked back ever, ever since. Wow. So that's really interesting because, you know, one of the questions I have is how would you define well-being? Is, is that how you define well-being? Um, that's one way of operationalizing well-being. We think the life satisfaction question is probably the, the best way. If you only have room for one item and one way of, of, of measuring it, that would probably be the one. There are other ways as well where you look at most, are you happy in the moment or, or the absence of stress or worry? Um, or you could also ask about purpose and meaning and finding life worthwhile, which is more of an eudaimonic and more an older, um, more Aristotelian approach to, to measuring well-being. But life satisfaction, we think, is probably the construct or the measure to operationalize general well-being 
that works best for policymakers and, and, and scholars. So, so this is really helpful. So I, I've got to ask both of you. I'm, I'm going to go to you first, Karen. Um, on a scale of one to 10, how is your life satisfaction today? Well, at this moment, it's a 10. I, I could push <laughs> it up to an 11. So I am really quite uh, happy and satisfied um, to be with you today. I mean, how privileged I am to be able to have this conversation with two very smart people who are changing the world in a positive way. So Amazing. I'm scoring really high. Wow. And I don't know how, Jan, your statistical um, head is going to deal with, with, with managing Karen's 11 on the scale of 10. <laughs> that is problematic. So luckily, that is not a, a possibility. I'm a blip. I'm a blip. You're off the charts. I'm off the charts. Know. Yes. Um, wonderful. Um, um, if you were to ask me, I'm, 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 I'm a nine or yeah, definitely a nine. Uh, by the way, the average in the UK is about so 6.87. So we're both doing, or as you say, Karen, very privileged to be here today and do what we do. Yes, absolutely. Amazing. That's in incredible. Well, Jan, I happen to know that relatively recently you and your wife welcomed your second child mm -hmm. into the world. So as a dad of two little ones, what is the change that you want to see in the world that will benefit your children's future? Oh, my. Um, Oh God, um, um, I mean, this is obviously a very nerdy response to such a big question, but um, more measurement and the measurement taken more seriously. And so if I, the change I would love to see is that maybe it won't happen in our generation, but at least our children's generation, that we move properly beyond GDP and that well-being mm -hmm. becomes the next GDP. That would be, and we're working on this big time because you know we're working with policymakers um, in, across different countries, trying to see how can you do cost-benefit analysis, but not based on money or dollars, but based on on well-being, and then how does that correlate with you know um, life years? So we're looking at something called well-bees, well-being adjusted life years. Can that be a new sort of currency uh, to to inform and drive policy? So I know it's a bit of a nerdy answer, but my hope is that well-being metrics, which we are now working on, um, become the same as GDP has been over the past 60 years. This is really interesting. So why? Why are well-being metrics a better measure of society than GDP? Oh, there's um, there's a, a lot of reasons why. The first thing you should know is that the person who invented GDP, it was called the National Income Accounts at the time, Simon Kuznets, won the Nobel Prize. And when he was speaking to US Congress, introducing his national income accounts, he literally said, please do not use this measure as a measure of social progress. It's really just a, a metric for measuring um, output uh, of, of what a society produces. But if, if you build prisons, if you go to war, um, all of that adds positively to um, GDP. But doing good for society, helping others, other virtuous behaviors that help others' well-being and your own, by the way, that doesn't count or accrue to well-being at all. Uh, sorry, uh, doesn't, sorry, it doesn't fit within GDP at all, but it's massively important for well-being. Um, and so it's, a, it's about time that we move beyond GDP. Now, that's not to say that GDP and income are not important, but a lot of societies have moved beyond the point where we really need to rethink um, um, growth for the sake of growth, not no longer translating to well-being. So we need to rethink the way we do things. And well-being is, I think, the one way forward on that front. And that's fascinating. And thank you. I want to go to you, Karen. Karen, can I ask you to take me to the moment where you decided to focus your career on the pursuit of well-being? So um, for me, well-being is the currency of life. 
So um, I actually come from a much more emotional uh, decision to pursue happiness and world and, and well-being. Um, and I come to happiness from a place of unhappiness. Um, we experienced a family uh, trauma. My husband died suddenly uh, from the flu, actually. So it's very similar to what people are going through or went through with COVID. So my heart goes out to anyone who's lost someone because I know what that's like. And I had a moment almost immediately after he died where uh, at first I didn't really want to live because um, it was, uh, it, I had, it, he was my best friend. So one of the things, losing your spouse and then losing your best friend, I had been married literally half my life. And I said, okay, I am finished. And then I remembered I had children and I was like, oh my goodness, I'm going to have to live. And I don't know how I knew, and I had this intuition because uh, I majored in psychology, but that was before positive psychology, and I didn't know anything about the science behind well-being and happiness. And intuitively, I knew that for me to make it, I had to be happy. And so I chose happiness before being happy. And uh, four months later, I was doing an MBA at Georgetown, and I, I was moving forward. And the bridge for me to well-being was through purpose and meaning. I couldn't do anything about what happened, but I could do something about how I perceived what happened. And so um, a couple of years later, I, uh, I decided to dedicate my life to creating a platform where we uh, promote the practical implementations of the science behind well-being and unite the world's leading experts in the World Happiness Summit and connect a global audience and talk about purpose, meaning forgiveness, uh, uh, GDP, um, well-being at work, chief happiness officers, et cetera, et cetera. And it's been quite, uh, quite amazing. We went from a, an event that started in 2017 and it became a movement all by itself. And, uh, and so we're very, very excited. I feel personally honored to be, to be leading this organization. And um, it really uh, is a fulfillment of, of my personal mission, which has become my, my business's mission. And so I encourage uh, other uh, perhaps entrepreneurs and mm -hmm. business leaders to know that you can create and run a business that does well in the traditional sense of business, but also is mindful of the environment and of uh, employees and of people. I mean, Karen, thank you for sharing a really incredible story. Early on in the story, you said you chose happiness. How do you choose happiness when times are so tough? Well, the first step is to, is to accept all human emotion. And that includes pain and disappointment and heartbreak. And so that's the first step is that you have to be able to um, honor your feelings, right? And for me, my choice was I had no other choice. You know, if I didn't choose uh, happiness, I could have you chosen survival or death. You know, you can be alive and be empty and feel uh, depressed and, 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 and all those things. And that's not to say that there's not depression and sadness for a while, especially when you lose a loved one. But after some time, you, you uh, have to make a decision whether you are going to live and what you want that to look like. And when I say live, I mean thrive, flourish, 
And for me, it was very important to be able to do that so that my children could also um, thrive. And I took on my husband's legacy. He was a physician, so science is very mm -hmm. important. Uh, he was brilliant and he was kind. And so through my work, I am able to promote a legacy of kindness around the world. And so in doing that, he is very much alive. And that makes me happy. It's amazing. And I, I was going to ask you the question, but you may already have answered it. But you're also a mother of two. Is that right? Yes. Um, so what is the change you want to see in the world uh, for, for your children's future? Well, you know, I, I, I will have to agree with what Jan said. I think it's really important to start uh, measuring life in a different way and success in a different way and to really have a paradigm shift. And I think something that also Richard Lyre talks about is creating win-win scenarios. I think we need to move away from zero-sum games and understand that we can all win, you know, and sometimes perhaps some of us win a little bit more than other times, but at the end it even evens out. And so it's this understanding that uh, we are uh, united and, and we're, we impact, especially as a global community, what happens in one part of the world has a direct impact, almost immediate impact in the rest. So mm -hmm. um, that's reality. And so we can do something about that impact. And, and my hope is that we can have more people like you and, and the World Wellbeing Movement um, in Iwahasu, World Happiness Summit, et cetera, that we can come together and have a have a watershed moment so that we can positively transform the world. We know enough now. We know what to do. We have data and we can act on I it. I so agree with, with Karen. The time is now. And I see uh, movements that are top down, bottom up. Um, there's Wahasu, there's Action for Happiness, it's a world well-being movement. Um, but all of it comes together. That's sort of the demand side for this. But then on the supply side of the science, We've now matured. This is it. I mean, positive psychology in the 90s, the economists is getting into the game, data sets and uh, so much science on all of it. We now have a really good sense of what drives people's well-being and also what the impact is of it. So uh, even if you're not looking for well-being as the outcome, it drives other outcomes as well that people might be interested in if they're still um, somewhat skeptical about well-being as the ultimate outcome. So the science is ready. Um, both uh, for you know within the workplace but also within policy so i think this watershed moment that, that you karen are talking about is um is coming very very near um and i think COVID has helped also accelerate um the recognition of it uh, not just in the workplace but more generally yes i agree i think it's really interesting you mentioned COVID. um you know it, it's hard to find any good in a period of such global tragedy but one thing I noticed was people talked about the importance of mental health and well-being a lot more um, during COVID. And, and I felt that was a really important change that was needed in the world. And I would ask both of you, do you think that's going to continue? My, my fear is that as memories fade, we revert back to a 2019 way of living. Uh, there's going to be a few things that will hopefully stick and improve well-being across the board and work-life balance in particular, if we think of hybrid working. But there's something else that happened during COVID. And if, I urge everybody to have a look at the, the latest World Happiness Report, Chapter 2 by John Halliwell. It's not just a ranking. Read behind and what uh, uh, follows the ranking of countries. Uh, we found during COVID, yes, of course, well-being took a hit. But we saw it was somewhat um, 
mitigated by a lot more pro-social behavior. People volunteering their time, donating, connecting, whether it was uh, in person or over the new, these new platforms. So there was, um, so in, in our language, social capital rose during that time. So there, so my hope is that just like the new techniques to do remote work, I'm hoping that some of the gains in social capital, that pro-social behavior, that we retain some of that, that people have experienced uh, other people in, in, in ways that um, stick. So you're talking about pro-social behavior. Does that mean if I volunteer my time for a charity, I'm going to feel happier? Yes. Oh, uh, Sarah, thank you for, for asking this because um, our colleague at the London School of Economics, Christian Kreckel and Paul Dolan and a few other scholars have just come out with an extraordinary paper where they looked at the NHS, the National Health Service volunteer scheme. So at the start of COVID here in the UK, there was the opportunity to volunteer your time through a, a, a coordinated platform that the National Health Service has put up. There was an there was too much demand or too much supply of volunteers, which allowed my colleagues at the LSE to, to sort of um, look at those that were selected and see what that, um, how that actually impacted their own well-being versus those that had also wanted to, to, to uh, volunteer but couldn't get on, were on the waiting list, if you will. The results are staggering and I've never seen such beautiful causal evidence for the impact of pro-social behavior, not just raising the well-being of the people that you're helping, um, but also for oneself. And this is where I think Karen spoke about um, uh, um, uh, Richard Layard's notion of sort of win-wins. The biggest win-win is pro-social behavior, volunteering, caring for others, because it helps, it sets in motion that positive cycle of improving the well-being of others while also improving your own and in turn becoming even more pro-social. So that's, that is something that we really have to cultivate and try and retain coming out of COVID. So, I mean, that's such a great tip. One of, one of the things that I wanted to get out of today, personally, talking to such incredible well-being experts was, what are the small things we can all do to help ourselves and help others? And I love that. So that's a call to action for everybody listening. Um, let's all volunteer more. Let's all help each other more and, and be kind and it'll help us. Um, Karen, I want to talk to you. When I was growing up, the concept or the notion of a conference dedicated to happiness would have been unheard of. But now, I mean, I think you founded um, the World Happiness Summit in, in 2016, is mm -hmm. that right? Mm -hmm. And you are attracting, I mean, you're making world leaders sit up and listen. It's an incredible success. I'd love to hear how you've seen the well-being industry evolve. So, um, first, I just want to say about COVID, because I have something to say about that. Um, is that, you know, you, you mentioned post-traumatic growth. I, I went through post-traumatic growth. And I think that, that uh, we all experience a collective global trauma because of COVID. In some way, we lost something small, medium, or large. And we have an opportunity to, to grow, from, experience post-traumatic growth, I think, collectively. And one of the things, for example, that I experience is in helping others, I became happier and improved my well-being. And so if you see this impact in the World Happiness Report, there you can see some of the evidence of post-traumatic growth that, that is possible. Um, and maybe that was um, instigated by a sense of trauma. What can I do? What can I control? And we can control the way we show up. So in helping others, and then people became 
Um, they, they felt better. They also invested in their relationships with family, perhaps family members that they didn't speak to. And now they were um, more cognizant that perhaps they could they could pass away or that they missed them or they became more important. They had more time. So I think that if we look, we we can see that there are some um, some evidence for this post-traumatic, this collective post-traumatic growth. Um, now, uh, for the summit. So I remember the first summit, uh, it was an experiment really to see who would come. And, and it was almost like the movie, if you build it, they will come. Um, and that was what it was a, a like. And, and people came from all over the world. So not only experts, um, who are at the height of their 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 field, but also a global audience. We had supermodels, monks, priests, CEOs, um, directors of academia from all over the world. People that were really interested in bringing happiness into their ed educational um, organizations and systems. We had uh, happiness seekers. We had happiness experts. And it was really global. And we had people that were really unhappy. And um, the evolution to your question, um, Sarah, about how I see well-being is that I believe that it's a sector in the economy that has not been identified. For example, I have been to several well-being conferences and I'm filling out uh, my name for the registration and it has, I'm telling you right now, it must have 20 different uh, descriptions of who you are as a company and none of them say mm -hmm. well-being. And, and by the way, well-being is not wellness. Wellness is wonderful, but it's not well-being. It's a completely different thing. Exactly. And even on LinkedIn, when we're filling out our company profile, there's no well-being. We mm -hmm. need to have well-being and we need to identify it quantify it. And that's, I believe, also a way that we can get uh, companies and also policymakers to pay attention because it's there. Can I ask, because I think the point you make about well-being needing to be a sector of the global economy, um, I have a couple of questions on this. I suppose my first one is, how do you see that working, Karen? What's your vision in terms of well-being being a sector of the global economy? So two things here. One is I would defer to academia to properly define the parameters. But the second thing that I'd like to say is that we need to raise awareness. So there are probably several global companies who would identify and who maybe are even providing a service that is for the well-being, for the global well-being, but they are not aware that that's what they're doing because they came about during a time that perhaps we weren't having this conversation. So another thing that we see, for example, is the rise of the chief well-being officer, so the chief happiness officer. So we offer now a certification in chief happiness officer because it's important to measure to uh, look after the, the, the employee well-being beyond benefits. So it's not an HR thing. Mm -hmm. It's something else altogether. Different language, different conversation. And um, the principles are really simple, but enacting them sometimes is difficult because we are trained in a different way and our mindsets and our culture is in a different way. 
So I think awareness is very, very important. I think that's why, you know, uh, listening to this podcast, looking at your research, Jan, looking at what the World Wellbeing Movement is doing. Uh, showing up at Wahasu. Showing up at Wahasu. You begin to raise an awareness. And then um, we will provide measurement through your work, Jan. <laughs> and many others. <laughs> and many others. You mentioned the role of the Chief, chief Happiness Officer. I, I believe... Wahasu has now got the world's first training program for chief happiness officers. It's not the world's first, but it's the only one that is uh, co-certified with a university. Okay, amazing. And uh, Jan, I'm going to go to you with this one, because I can't help think that every company should have a chief happiness officer. But I wonder, might the challenge be that some people, maybe some business leaders, see an investment in employee well-being as maybe a luxury or an add-on, particularly when budgets are tight, rather than a necessity. Um, mm -hmm. And I'd love to know what the research says on this front. I mean, is having a chief happiness officer, is investing in employee well-being, is that a luxury or actually should that be a foundational part of business strategy? Oh, absolutely foundational. I mean, the business case for well-being is by now so strong and um, and we've contributed a little bit on that front as well through our research. There's no question that having a chief happiness or well-being officer, uh, or at least having that within the minds of very senior executives and having them make them aware of how to measure it, what the impact is on the bottom line, and also how to improve it, um, is is really critical. I mean, um, most the most obvious reasons why or the pathways for why well-being impacts uh, your organization's performance are essentially threefold one is um, a happier worker is a more productive worker um, that was always sort of very intuitive to people but they didn't necessarily act upon it senior managers but we now have the first causal field evidence showing just how effective uh, this pathway is so uh, we studied this for um, years on end with our partner british telecom where we um, looked into the well-being every week of all the call center employees and were able to map that against their performance each week. And essentially, um, a change in well-being from one week to another led to about 12% change in weekly sales for these call center employees. So the business case is getting stronger, a lot more um, measured and detailed. And so you can really go to your CFO at some point and say, look, this is, this is something that will really improve the well-being of our employees. This is what the expected outcome will be in terms of performance, if, uh, if, that's, if that's the language you need to speak to try and get and improve employee well-being. But the pathways between workplace well-being and um, company or organizational performance, it's not just the immediate effect on people's individual productivity. It's also if you're a good place to work and people are happy there, we now have causal field evidence for that also making you a more attractive employer for talent to come towards you. And not only that, if you're a good place to work, you will retain your talent longer. And so while the effects of, of interventions to improve workplace well-being generally within the organization, the effects on attraction and retention may take a bit longer to really feed through to the bottom line, the effects are very strong, are there, and are starting to be seen, especially now in the day and age of the great resignation, where people are trying to retain talent and attract new talent. And that's really top of mind for CEOs. So, in some, there's um, a, the business case revolves around you're attracting more talent, you make them more productive and engaged while at work, um, and you retain your talent longer. And that is a real competitive advantage. 
That's fascinating. And, you know, I started my career out in the call centers. So uh, hearing that you did that particular study uh, with, with call center agents, as I was, um, uh, it's incredible to hear that they were 12 percent uh, more productive when they were happier. Um, but a lot of people listening might, um, you know, maybe be a site lead or a HR lead or, or a well-being lead or just a team lead. And they want to invest more in employee well-being, but but there can often be a cost with that. Mm-hmm. If they approach a CFO, what should they say? Should they say, listen, if we invest in employee well-being, productivity will go up, employee retention will go up. What if the CFO says, look, all I care about is the share price? Ah, well, um, thank you for asking that question because that is obviously into the next stage in the business case. How do the outsiders, the investors see this, especially if it's a big publicly uh, traded company on, on, on some kind of on some stock market somewhere. So here I'm very pleased to say we're working really hard on this at the very moment. It'll, it'll be published in 2023. Um, and we are linking employee well-being literally uh, from the employee's own uh, um, experience through crowdsourcing all the major companies and linking that to the share price fluctuations of these companies. And I can already tell you um, there's a very strong correlation and even some predictive power to changes in workplace well-being that we pick up through crowdsource measures on and uh, the influence of uh, their stock market, um, their share, their, their shares, their share price. Now, what's interesting, what I'm really curious about and keen to dig into a bit more is we found that during the bull run of um, uh, 2021, uh, the companies that were scoring high, where employees were really happy and pleased to work and appreciate the experience of working there, they outperformed the S&P 500 and New York Stock Exchange by quite a margin. But what we've seen in the preliminary analysis of 2022, which is a bear market where um, companies went down, we I, I think the delta between good places to work and not so good places to work, the difference is even higher. So good places to work showed more resilience um, to the downturn in the economy an even bigger difference than it was just being a better performing during um, in, in the good in the good years. So this is this kind of material will really connect with CFOs, I think, and it just goes to show what a competitive advantage there is to workplace well-being on through and for a number of really, really obvious reasons. That, that, that's incredible. I want to go back just to the uh, point about uh, speaking to the C, uh, CFO. And uh, one question you might want to ask is, and they will know the answer to this metric, is what is the price of unhappiness at work and illness mm-hmm. at work? And they're very present to those numbers. And that's why they know many times it's the CFO and not the CEO that really know that they need to implement some kind of change. And so we have those metrics, we have data that show what what the impact of well-being does at work for the organization and for, of course, the social benefit of the community, for families and for the individual employee. But also we have the costs of unhappiness and um, the companies that are not paying attention to that are, in a sense, bleeding out and they're looking for triage. And so the triage that I would like to see is well-being, well-being principles and practices, because they will help you 
with this, with um, employee illness yeah. and unhappiness and attrition and disengagement and sabotage and all these other mm. goodies. And um, so there's really no downside to investing in employee well-being. I really like what Karen says. Speaking to CFOs, we're, we're all behavioral scientists uh, to some extent, is the framing could actually help if you frame it negatively. The cost of ill-being and mental health issues amongst your staff, that will speak to them because they will see it immediately what the impact is. So they see it in absenteeism rates. Um, they see it in staff turnover. Um, and we talk about absenteeism, but there's also something called presenteeism. Essentially, people, people do show up at work, but essentially mentally ill uh, and not engaged at all. And that has a huge cost as well. So in the UK, for example, um, one of the big consultancies on behalf of the government tabulated just what the cost is of mental health and ill-being concerns. Um, and it was like 40 or 50 billion pounds a year uh, lost uh, in productive days, essentially. Mm -hmm. So it, it's just just extraordinary. Something else building on this business case that we, we can really push, I think, with CEOs and CFOs is um, what we found in the BT study is that the types of tasks that these call center employees were doing, um, some were more related or some were more uh, influenced by how they felt than others. So if it was just order taking, um, where you didn't have to apply social or emotional intelligence, that's where, well, whether you were feeling good or not so good, didn't have all that much impact. But as soon as you went to the, the more common tasks where you do need to actually engage with other human beings, show social and emotional intelligence, um, retain disgruntled customers, or sell complexer packages that combine, I don't know, broadband with telephone, et cetera, then the impact of well-being and how you felt that week and at that moment was a lot stronger than the 12%. That's just the average effect. But as soon as you move to more creative tasks, uh, social tasks, dealing with other human beings, uh, requiring social and emotional intelligence, that's where well-being really kicks in. Mm -hmm. So one thing I would point out to CEOs and CFOs is most of the workers in your company are not doing mindless tasks. They are mostly working together, brainstorming, dealing with clients, you name it, all requiring social and emotional intelligence. And that's where it really impacts how you feel. And you know, stop for a second, think. Um, it's as intuitive as possibly can be. If, you, if you're not feeling good, yourself, you're, you feel ill, then you're not going to be able to bring up the energy and the social and emotional intelligence that you need to do well in a brainstorming session or convincing a client or selling something or whatever. And so that really resonates. So, but back to Karen's point, I mean, if you frame it from the negative end, sadly, that might actually resonate more, especially with CFOs. So that is a good point to make. So loss aversion. So yeah. if, if, you're a, a, a business leader um, trying to convince your CFO uh, for budget. There's lots of lots of reasons here in the business case. There's you know the attract talent attraction, talent retention, increased productivity, but loss aversion tells us that it hurts more to lose five dollars than it does to gain five dollars, and there is a huge loss here for companies um, if they're not investing in well-being. Now. I have to say, from my own experience, and I've spent many years in the corporate world, I truly believe that most business leaders really do care. Absolutely. And they really do want to help their employees. But actually, they might not know how, because they haven't spent years studying the science of well-being. And I guess my question to both of you is, what's your advice to business leaders who are saying, I want to help my employees what do I do? Do I roll out yoga classes? Do I roll out mindfulness classes? What's the answer here? I, I might start with you, Karen, and, and then go to you, Jan. 
So I think again um, about awareness, and so of course you know a, a yoga class or a a mental health app on its own is is not enough. You know, I mean, especially that we're living really ch challenging times. The economy, um, gl global strife, uh, unfairness, inequality, political uh, problems, to say the least. Uh, and so uh, the pandemic, et cetera. So we need leaders who will take time, okay, to first educate themselves a bit and to know that something needs to change in the organization. And the first thing I think is important is to budget it, to say, okay, I may not be an expert, but I am either going to get a group here and teach us how to do this, so kind of train the trainer, or I'm going to hire for this position, or I'm going to start to do um, monthly classes for our, our employees. Um, I'm going to also behave in a way that uh, shows that I care about this. I think that's really important because we are um, we can communicate in many ways and our behavior is a big one. So not only what we say, but that we actually do it and we show respect and mattering at work. We um, help people feel valued and add value and give them those opportunities and create a safe space. Psychological safety is very important. And so where whether, you know, a, a CEO may not be an expert, right? They're, they do have the capacity and capability to say this is important for our organization. Here's money for this, we're going to make this happen and, 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 and this is the team that's going to do it because it doesn't happen by magic. No. You know, even well-being experts have sadness, depression, anger, Emotional. you know, disappointment, et cetera, et cetera. And we have to reset. You talked about framing. We okay. have to reframe, you know? So I think it has to be purposeful action. And for that, it requires funds and it, it requires people who know how to do it. But again, to your point earlier, we have the data. And that's a good start. But um, so managers who care, who make funds available, who measure, and once you get start measuring, you tend to then also care and, and, and uh, manage it. But then you, st and then you have to understand the data, look for what drives well-being in my organization. And that can be different between types of employees, between types of organizations, between industries. So there's a lot of work that's been done on that already, where we're starting to get a good sense of what seems to be most important, important to people in the workplace. And it's not necessarily what you think. So when you ask people what's most important driving your job satisfaction or well-being at work, they might say, oh, being paid fairly, which is, economists would say, yes, that must be it. But the reality is when you actually run the analysis of what correlates most strongly to how they actually feel at work, turns out that pay falls to the middle of the pack and it's a sense of belonging, for example. Um, how, uh, having friends at work, um, connecting humanly with other people and on the job turns out to be a lot more important than people think. But then we get to this question, well, well, what do you actually do with it? So you care, you have resources in place, you've measured it, you've understand, understood the data, but that is not actually yet moving the needle on, on this. What do people actually do? And so there is, so we're now essentially talking about interventions. And that's where there's a lot more work needed. A lot of companies trial little pilots and they do this or invest in, in, in some kind of app or this or that. Um, I think one thing that we really have established by now is that, and I'm borrowing the phrase from somewhere else, you can't yoga your way out of this or a mindfulness-based app is not going to be sufficient to do this. We, it will, you will have to dig deeper. 
despite yoga and mindfulness being fantastic, it's um, it will not do the trick. There's more structural issues at play, toxic workplaces, not allowing psychological uh, safety, um, gen uh, generating a sense of belonging, flexibility, autonomy, you name it. Now, there is academics have over the past decades tried to do proper interventions and evaluate the impact on them on the driver at hand, say psychological safety or belonging or flexibility, and the impact that then in turn has on one's well-being and potentially even productivity in some cases. So we're now in the process of, of surveying all this literature and we're hoping with the World Wellbeing Movement in the next few months to really um, make that available, uh, um, properly categorized, um, and, um, and links to all of the evidence uh, that's, uh, that shows which um, interventions have worked in the past, um, really driving the drivers of well-being, um, and the quality of the evidence behind it. And then we're hoping that that will inspire chief well-being officers or, or CEOs and, and, and HR, CHROs to say, okay, how can we adapt some of these evidence-based interventions to, to see whether that might help in our workplace. So that's something that we're really working hard on. And this is also a bit of a call to all people listening or, or viewing this is if you're an if you're an inspired leader in an organization and you're thinking of trying something, call in your local academics. They might be really keen to help you out and run a small survey before you launch the intervention mm -hmm. and through and then pass it to see uh, or even better, an A-B test or a randomized control trial to see, is this actually moving the needle, this intervention? Because then you're adding to the evidence base. Uh, and then it's these menu of interventions that we're hoping to build out with the World Wellbeing Movement that can make that a public good for everyone. Amazing. So I guess what I'm hearing is there's actually lots of different levers. There is no one silver mm -hmm. bullet. There's lots of different levers that managers can pull on to try and improve employee well-being. So th this has been the most fascinating conversation, but but I want to wrap it up. And, and in, in true sort of um, quiz, quiz show host style, <laughs> I have some rapid fire final questions for both of you. OK, so this is where talk, I'm getting let very me take anxious. A sip, let me take a sip of my coffee. <laughs> so we've talked a lot about workplace well-being. I would like to know for both of you, what's the best job you've ever been in from a workplace well-being perspective? Oh, my current job, for sure. Absolutely. Uh, running the World Happiness Summit? No, I can't. I can't have imagine something better than that. And that's because of your sense of purpose? My sense of purpose, my sense of fun, my sense of creativity. I get social. I get to hang out with people like you. It's, uh, yeah, and it's fantastic. I can't. Amazing. Can't, can't say more than that. Uh, um, similar. Um, in particular, my role as... Um, directing the, uh, the Wellbeing Research Center, a group of about 15 super smart, talented, like-minded uh, people who care about each other. Um, yeah, so it's, that, that has been, that's been the most satisfying, rewarding, purposeful endeavor, and we're in the midst of it. Amazing. Can I give a tip here? So yeah. to try to have more fun at work. <laughs> try to have more fun at work and laugh because we have lost a sense of play. Mm -hmm. And that really can can improve well-being as well oh, and, and belonging. But it requires a workplace that is open, absolutely. where people feel a sense of belonging, where they have friends. Because yes. you mean, there's no fun. Oh, absolutely. No, not forced. No. My final question for both of you is what are your what do you do on a daily basis, on a weekly basis for your own well-being? Can I start with you? 
I start every day uh, before I don't check. Well, I don't sleep with my phone, so I don't check it in the morning and I don't check it after 9 p.m. And uh, so I wake up, have a cup of coffee, and then I, uh, I read. I read and journal every day, every single day. And that helps me reset, reframe, how do I want to be today? Not how, what do I need to do today, but how do I want to be today? Because I can control how I want to be and how I want to show up. And so I do that. And um, yeah, and I do do yoga every day. So. <laughs> <laughs> yoga so. in context, though. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. I work on my breathing and the powerful impact of the breath and also uh, the, the powerful poses and mind-body connection. And mm-hmm. so you can actually change your mood by your stance. So there's a lot of things that go mm-hmm. well with that. Amazing. But I like what you just said. It's yoga in your own context not sort of force-fed, hoping to be a magic bullet for employees doing it in the workspace, in very uncomfortable places, probably within or beyond the working hours, trying to keep you in the office. Well, being is subjective. You have to do what feels right to you. Exactly. Sian, final words. What do you do for your well-being, either on a daily or a weekly basis? What really resets me is if I can go for a jog in the woods. Uh, It reconnects me with nature, the real world, um, fresh air, and I came back inspired and, uh, and energized to help at home uh, and get work done. So that, that's, that's I, I try to find at least if I don't, um, every other day at least, I would, will try and get a moment, half an hour, something where I can run outside in the woods. And I'm, I'm lucky to be in a place where um, we've got lots of woods around us. Amazing. So for you, it's being out in nature, mm-hmm. it's jogging. For you, it's yoga. It's having that time for yourself to read those daily journal articles and this has been fascinating what is it for you sarah yeah that's a great question for me it's nature as well i'm i love hiking i'm so lucky that my my husband is my best friend and we both love hiking together so getting out in nature um and there is a funny story actually um there is a sheep on that shelf um and the reason there is a sheep on that shelf and i will tell you this story very quickly because this links to my well-being During lockdown, we in Ireland, there was a two kilometer radius as to where you could go. Uh, That increased to a five kilometer radius, which meant I could could not get out to the countryside. When they lifted that, my husband and I went hiking one weekend. I saw a sheep and I burst out crying. My husband went, why are you crying? And I went, it's just, it's just, I haven't seen a sheep in months. <laughs> so that became the running joke. And we, we, we found that sheep and we purchased that sheep. And um, now I will never be Now I will get to see sheep all the time. But for me, it's getting out into nature. And, yeah. and, and I really do feel that nature grounds you really grounds you and is so mm-hmm. uplifting. And that's what I try to do. And the data says so too. Yes, yeah. most certainly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, I've learned so much from both of you. It's been an absolute honor and a privilege sitting here and chatting to you. I could keep chatting to you for another three hours, <laughs> um, but I'm not sure people get to listen for another three hours. So thank you so, so much. And I hope maybe we can welcome both of you back uh, to to a future podcast down the line. Thank you so pleasure. much. Thank you. Thank you for, for having us. And it was a pleasure to share this with you, Jan. Yes. You. Likewise, Karen. Thank you, Sarah, for hosting this. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.